Isaiah chapter 58. We won't read it right now. We'll read it about halfway through the sermon. But you can just be open there. Let's ask God to bless our time together as we study his word. Lord, thank you um, for those of us who could be together this morning as a family. We're mindful of those who are not with us. We are mindful also of those who have suffered great loss in this season. In Ventura, and the fires, Montecito, Santa Barbara, here in Carpentry as well. We, we're mindful of those and we continue to pray for them, Lord that you be merciful to them. That you would restore unto them good things. Thank you that you are the God who is near and not far. You are the God who hears and is attentive to our cries. Thank you that your word tells us that throughout history, as your people have cried out to you, you have responded in mercy and in wonders. May this be such a time, Lord. We ask it this morning as we talk about perhaps what we might do to be faithful as Christians at such a moment in history that you'd give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts that want to obey you. We ask that you would give us unction by the Holy Spirit to live for your purposes that are bigger than our own purposes, for your glory that is bigger than us and everything that we're concerned about. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to be faithful believers, to be faithful as a church. Help us with that, Lord. Help me now to be faithful as a preacher, please, God, and as a pastor, as a shepherd. For the glory of Christ, we pray, and in that name we pray. Amen. So we just want to talk a little bit about what it might mean for us as a church, again, to be faithful at this time reminding our, of our, ourselves of this fact that being faithful is a thing. That's like a, a thing that we need to think about as Christians, as a church, as believers, as the church, capital C, right, along with other churches. Being faithful as Christians and as a church is a thing that we want to be mindful of all the time. There are certain things and realities that we as a church must be faithful to. Like as a church, we are tenaciously and radically committed to trying to be faithful to Jesus. Like that's what we want to do as a church. We want to be faithful to Jesus. So we want to make Jesus preeminent. We want him to be supreme in our lives, in our church, in our preaching, in our learning, in our worshiping, in our giving, in our generosity, in our ministries, in our mercy. We as Christians, and then we together as a church, want to be faithful to Jesus. There are other controlling things for the church to which we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful always to God's word. This is God's absolute word, his very word, his inerrant, true, and holy word. We as God's people, we as a church, always want to be faithful to God's word. We want to be faithful to God's purposes as Christians. Right? We studied a few weeks ago the Great Commission where Christ called us to go unto all the nations and preach the gospel. We want to be faithful to Christ's call on us as sent people, locally, globally, wherever we find ourselves, wherever there are open doors, we want to be faithful. 
want to be faithful to the truth of the gospel and what it means about forgiveness. And that we are more desperately wicked than we ever dare imagine, but we are more loved than we could possibly ever conceive. We want to be faithful to that principle as a church, as we deal with each other in our marriages, in our community, in our relationships. There are certain things that we as Christians are committed to being faithful to. And so as a church as well. And then I think at a time like this, we need to realize that we also want to be faithful with certain opportunities that are brought to us as a church, certain opportunities that we might have. Now, when we think about that, and we think about what's going on in our community, we realize that it's not just now, but always there are a litany of needs in our community. The needs are unending. And if we want to look on a global scale, the needs are unending. So we realize, and we'll discern this especially in the book of Acts, that the church is not merely meant to be need-driven, but we have to be call-driven. There are too many needs in the world. And Jesus, our example, our Savior, our King, even Jesus went to bed at night without healing every leper in Israel. So we want to discern the call of God upon us as Christians individually, as a church corporately. What are the opportunities before us and how do you want us to engage? We can't do everything, but we ought to do something. And the book of Acts is very much a testimony of the church discerning how the Holy Spirit was leading and opportunities and some difficult times through open doors in glorious ways. And so we want to be faithful as Christians as a church with this moment in history in our community. Because I hope we never see another one like this in our lifetime. But this is our lifetime. And we are God's people in this place. And we can't do everything. But we ought to do something. So that begins with trying to discern the call, which always involves prayer. Always involves prayer. Prayer is a means by which we discern these things and and we hear the call of God. So I want us to think about that a little bit. Last week, we, we referenced this passage from Psalm 66 and we'll look at it again. The psalmist writes there, who I believe in this psalm is King Hezekiah most likely. He writes, we went through fire and through flood, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The testimony of Israel at this time was that they too had been through fire. They too had been through flood, but they had experienced God and his grace and his mercy, bringing them as a people into a place of abundance. So we, in the last few weeks, have made this a theme for us in prayer as a church. This has become our prayer. King Hezekiah was writing reflectively in the past tense, you did, God, already bring us into a place of abundance. We're looking at it in the future tense, and we've made this a prayer. Lord, you've allowed us to experience catastrophe times two in our community. And so now, merciful Father, please bring us into a place of abundance. This is a prayer for us as God's people right now. This has been a prayer for us as reality, as a family right now. And as we're praying it, I think we need to uh, consider carefully what that might mean for us as a community, a place of abundance. What exactly are we saying? 
What are we asking God to do when we pray, when we say, Lord, we have been through fire and through flood. Now bring us into a place of abundance. What are we saying when we ask God that? How might we look for God? How might we expect God to answer that prayer? What is abundance? Well, in the original Psalm where it's used, the Hebrew word, and it's only used a couple times in the Old Testament, here and in Psalm 23. The Hebrew word carries the idea uh, of being satiated or satisfied. The psalmist uses it again, different psalmist, King David in Psalm 23, 5, where he says, my cup overflows, or my cup runneth over, in O King James. My cup overflows. There's that same word there. It's a picture of satisfaction, satiation, an abundance, more than what is needed. That's the idea in the word. So the psalmist is saying, God, we went through difficult times, lean times, times of loss, and times of destruction, but you brought us into a place where we had and experienced more than enough. Our cups were overflowing once again. We were a people who were satiated and satisfied, is what the psalmist is saying there. But with what in the original context? What was King Hezekiah talking about? We, we, we think we, when I say we, I mean like Bible students, theologians, of which I'm not necessarily one, but we think that when King Hezekiah is writing this, he's talking about the, the time when King Sennacherib of Assyria had laid siege to Jerusalem. That was a difficult time. And if you read the psalm and then you read the story back in 1 Kings, you could see how that, those could be parallel there. That's what we think is going on. So when King Hezekiah writing this psalm, King Hezekiah of Israel saying, God, you brought us into a place of abundance, I think he's speaking primarily about the safety and the security of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. They had experienced dire threat. And in the face of invasion and war, there had been fires and floods and all sorts of difficulties. But God had saved them. God had delivered them and he brought them into this place of abundant safety and security and well-being for Jerusalem and its inhabitants. So that's what's happening in context. What then, with that as our guide, might we be praying when we say to God, we've been through fire and we've been through flood, bring our community into a place of abundance. What might we be saying? Normally, when people would think of abundance, they might, have think, they might think of things like wealth. But we would have to say that we are one of the most wealthy communities in the world. So I don't know if that's the prayer at this time. Someone might think of something like beauty, beauty that surrounds us, or beauty in our architecture, or in our buildings, or in, our, our, in the natural space around us. But we are also one of the most beautiful places in the world. We are still wealthy. We are still beautiful. So I don't know that that's the prayer that we need to be praying. The fires and the floods have made many of us very uncomfortable. Many of our brothers and sisters in Montecito are displaced and will be so for a long time. In Ventura, so many had their homes burned. Here in Carpentry, etc., have been displaced. It's been incredibly uncomfortable. 
So is the prayer of abundance bring us back into comfort, God? I don't know. Even in this state, we are some of the most comfortable people in the history of the world. So I don't know that that's the prayer. We have an abundance of all these things still yet. Wealth, comfort, beauty, even influence. The only thing that our community has a scarcity of is true spirituality before God. The only area in which we lack is in the knowledge of God. Is in acknowledging and worshiping Christ as the Lord of all the earth, the King over all kings. The only place where we are lean is as it pertains to the exaltation of Jesus in our community and all the implications that that might have for our morality as a community. The prayer of abundance that we need to utter is one of spiritual need. That is the great need of our community. Greater than our financial loss, greater than our discomfort, greater than the mess and the job before us. Our great need is one of spiritual awakening for our community, for us even as God's people, as this church. Our great need is for one of true spiritual awakening and renewal. Our need is one of repentance and turning toward God as a community. And so I think that's what we mean when we pray, Lord, we've been through fire and we've been through flood. Bring us into a place of abundance, of more than enough, where our cup overflows, where we are satiated and satisfied. We're talking about our great need for Jesus. We're asking God then when we pray this to bring us as a community into true life. For true life is what we don't have. We have comfortable lives, we have wealthy lives, we have beautiful lives, we have influential lives, we have fun and awesome recreational lives. But where our community lacks is in true life. Because the scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that we are dead in our sins. But scripture declares from beginning to end that God created us to live and for life. And for overflowing, satisfied, satiated, abundant life in him. That is how he created us when he placed us in the garden. But as we spoke of last week, that true life, that true satisfaction, that true abundance was lost in our own rebellion. And in the chaos of the ensuing results of our own sin. And God's curse upon us as humanity for our rebellion. The good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came and said this in John 10.10. The thief, speaking of the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's that idea again. The bad news is that we as humanity have been ripped off from true life, abundant life, true satisfaction through our own sin and rebellion. Originally, through Adam and Eve, for all of humanity, 
and currently through our own sins as people. But the good news is that Jesus came to die a death on the cross whereby he would pay the price for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we who were dead in the debt of our sins might be made new in life before God. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. That we might have abundant life and eternal life, satiated, satisfied, full life as God intended for the people that he created. And what we know, because we have scripture, is that this is only experienced through Jesus. And the world says, and especially in our community, because our community is kind of a spiritual hotbed of different sort of ideologies and philosophies, the world says that there are many ways to know God and to find satisfaction in life. But scripture says, says there is one way to know God and to ever be satisfied and to have eternal and abundant life that is through Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we are praying, we've been through fire and we've been through flood, bring us into a place of abundance. We are praying for the awakening to the realization of and the exaltation of the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. We are asking God to save people in our community. And the reason why this moment is opportune is because God throughout history will often use difficult circumstances to bring people to himself. You understand that? That happens in your life. That happens in my life. That happens in our world. God will use difficult circumstances to bring people to himself because he loves people. And as we talked about last week, God does not want to judge people, but he wants to save people. And so what we think God might do in this opportunity, our community then, is move people toward spiritual awakening. I think the church needs it. I think the church is just as lulled into complacency by wealth and comfort and our influence and our recreation as our friends all around us. I think the church, myself included, needs fresh spiritual awakening. And we know that our community, apart from Jesus, needs to be awoken to their need. And awakening starts with need. So when we're praying, Lord, bring us into a place of abundance. We could put that verse back up, Randy, for a moment. When we're praying, bring us into a place of abundance. We're praying, Lord, open our community's eyes to their need for a savior. In all humility, with all mercy, as many have suffered loss at this time, use these difficult things because you love them to open up their eyes to their need for you. that we would realize that where we truly lack, ultimately, is spiritually. Jesus in Matthew 5, 3 and 6 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
So there's promises about a place in God's kingdom and about satisfaction in life through realizing our need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit here, the idea is of a spiritual beggar. The word, in, the, the word denotes uh, destitution, absolute bankruptcy, spiritually speaking. So the person who comes to a place of realizing that, that because of my sins, apart from being forgiven, apart from repenting of my sins and knowing God, I am spiritually empty, destitute, bankrupt, ultimately and always and forever lacking. The person that realizes that and so then turns to Jesus who loves them and gave himself for them upon the cross that they might be forgiven and have new and abundant and eternal life is blessed for the kingdom of God is theirs. A kingdom which shall not be shaken. And the person then that hungers and thirsts for righteousness then realizes like I'm, my life is, is, is my life looks like and it smells like and it feels like sin and rebellion against God and my own putrid rebellion and the effects of it have made me hungry for the righteousness of God and what righteousness brings to my life and my family and my marriage and my kids and my church and my community. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Those who lull themselves into slumber by thinking that they'll find satisfaction in our rebellion and our sin and our secret sin and our secret affairs and all these other things will never know satisfaction. We will only ever discover that through repenting of our sins and receiving the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. So I think when we're praying God bring us into a place of abundance, we're praying that we would be awoken to our great spiritual need. When I'm saying we, I mean our whole community that's been affected by the fires and the floods. We're asking that God would use this as a catalyst for spiritual awakening. And I just think I've been struck this week as we've had a couple of prayer meetings and we've been praying as a staff and praying with other people about this. I've just been struck this week with a sense that it would be such a great waste for our community to go through the fires and the floods and then not experience a spiritual awakening. I mean, yeah, thank you, God. Like, we're going to be able to rebuild and we'll get new houses. There's people that are lost forever that we can never replace, but people will rebuild houses and infrastructures and businesses will be revived and all those good things. But Lord, if that's all that happens and we continue in our abundance of wealth and comfort and influence and fun and beauty, but we never come to realizing our great spiritual need, we don't experience a great spiritual awakening in our community, I just want to say, I'll be disappointed. So then thinking as part of this church then, I think, gosh, if, if that's the desire and if that's the prayer, then we need to be faithful in trying to determine how the Spirit might lead us in moving toward being a part of his work of spiritual awakening in our community. To be a part of that. You know, it starts with us. Like as Christians, like, God, how do you want to spiritually awake me? Where do I need to be woken up to the reality of my sin and my secret sins and all these inconsistent ways that I'm living and all these other things that I'm, I'm making gods and idols in my life? I'm preaching to myself all morning this morning, I'm preaching to myself. I'm hearing this with you. How might a, a, an, an awakening happen in my life, Lord? How might it happen in our church? How might it happen in the church in our community? And then spread to the community. 
How can we, Lord, be a part of that? So as I'm, I'm thinking about that, I think we're discovering that, that in the very least means intercession. Right? Because that's what we're doing when we pray that for our community. Right? We're interceding on people's behalf. It's like, Lord, we've been through fire, we've been through flood. We're asking, we're interceding on people's behalf. We're standing in the gap and we're asking that you would bring us into this place of abundance. So then we are saying as Christians that we're willing to work on behalf of others for their well-being. That's a call on Christians. Right? Jesus said, take the gospel to all the nations for the glory of Christ and for the good of people. So I think to be faithful as Christians as a church in this time would mean that we have to be willing to work on behalf of others. And obviously there'll be lots of practical ways to do that in the days to come. There's families in our church that their homes are full of mud and they've already said, I can't wait till the day we can all go dig them out. And there'll be tons of stuff like that to do. As many of us have already been going around digging people out. There'll be plenty of that to do. But what does it mean to stand in the gap, to intercede for people, people, spiritually. And are we as a church willing to do that? It's interesting to me that throughout scripture, God has always looked for people to do that. He's always looked for people who are willing to stand in the gap in difficult days. God in his sovereignty has somehow in his infinite wisdom committed himself to our prayers They in no way diminish his sovereignty. We're never going to force God to do something that he doesn't want to do or that's against his nature or his character. But somehow, because of his love for humanity and his sovereign wisdom, he has committed himself to our prayer. So scripture shows us time and time again, there are certain things that God would love to do for people that he will only do in response to other people's prayers. Scripture shows us there are things that God wants to do for people, but because nobody prayed, he didn't do it. Because God in his crazy kindness has chosen throughout history to work through his people rather than independent of his people. And because he loves us and calls us to witness, he has kindly committed himself in some way within his sovereignty to our prayers. So he's always looking for people who are willing to stand in the gap. Look at this passage from Psalm 106. It's talking about um, Exodus 32. Let me give you a little background for it. In Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain, hanging out with God. The people are down below. Moses has been on the mountain a long time. He's been up there for 40 days. The people are getting impatient. They're like losing trust and faith. They're like, dude, what's Moses doing? Is God really even up there? Aaron, who is the high priest. Aaron, make us a God that we could see. Aaron, like some corrupt high priestess, will give me all your gold. And he takes the gold and he makes the golden calf out of it. And he says, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is like bad stuff. And then it says in the Hebrew that they begin to worship that thing and commit acts of revelry in the Hebrew, which means sexual acts of worship around this golden calf. So then God up on the mountain to Moses says to Moses, Moses, you need to get back down the mountain. Your people are up to really bad stuff. And Moses, I'm going to kill him. So God said, All sin is punishable by death. The wages of sin is death. 
The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. So God was fully just in his character and his word and what he told people and his holiness to wipe them out, to judge them for their sin. He said, Moses, your people are down there doing that. I'm going to kill them. You better get down there. Moses prays. He sees what's going on. And he says to God, oh God, your people. See what happened there? Oh God, your people who are called by your name, who you delivered from Egypt with a righteous right arm. Oh God, your people have mercy on your people. And God said, okay. And he spared them all because one man was willing to stand in the gap to intercede, to ask God. Now it's consistent with God's character because scripture has already told us that God prefers mercy over judgment. He even sent his son in the world not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him, John three seventeen. God always wants to extend mercy, but he's also a righteous and just judge. But when someone stands in the gap and asks for mercy, God is willing to do that. Mo was one dude and it was a whole nation. Psalm 106 says, therefore, he said that he would destroy them, God, about that story. Had not Moses chosen, his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Let the profundity of those words mean something profound to us. God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses simply asked for mercy. God is crazy in the ways he has committed himself to our prayers within his sovereign mercy. We could look at another example in Ezekiel 22, which is kind of the, uh, the, 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 com- the converse of that. Israel was once again in trouble. God was going to judge them. And then it says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus I've poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. The way I've brought upon their heads declares the Lord God. God says, I was actually looking for someone who would just ask for mercy. Someone among the people identified with them who would say, God, have mercy on us. And there was no one. God continued with his course of judgment. God is crazy in the way he has committed himself and his sovereign mercy to prayer. Our prayers. So I think it's important that as a church, we think about our ministry of intercession, standing in the gap, asking God for our community, working on their behalf for God to bring them into a place of abundance as it pertains to spiritual things. And that requires both witness and prayer. Calling it out and calling it down. Witness and prayer. Witness doesn't mean just to verbalize the gospel. Someone to witness also means to be willing to call out right from wrong, good from evil, dark from light, to call it out and to call it down. People who are willing for the glory of Jesus and the good of people, willing to call stuff out and to call down God's blessing upon them. People who are willing in the community to say, we are calling that out. That is darkness. That is sin. That is wrong. And we are calling down God's mercy upon you. 
God's blessing upon you. That your eyes would be open to your great need in your sin and in your rebellion against him. That you would repent of your sins and be saved. We're going to call that out. That's sin. We're going to call down God's mercy for you. I think that's what it is to love a community. To love them, to love ourselves enough to tell them and us the truth. Gosh, I think about the fact that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that today on State Street, there are Planned Parenthood flags flying in our community. That just needs to be called out, dude. That just needs to be called out. That's darkness. Taking of innocent lives, that's darkness. The governmental funding of that, that is darkness. That needs to be called out and may God have mercy on you. We got to call down God's mercy on them. But that's scary to do. And I find so often what keeps me from willing to be a voice that will call it out I realize it's easy for me because I have a big pulpit and I stand here and everyone sits here and nobody's going to say anything while I'm doing it. So this isn't really fair. This isn't what I mean by calling it out. I mean like in your workplace, with your family, on the streets, in public means and squares. And this isn't fair. This is a guy with a big mouth and a big Bible. But to really do it on ground level, that's a scary thing. And I find so often what keeps me from being someone who's willing to call it out is my own sin. And so I know if I go around calling things out, I'm just a big hypocrite. So I think what it means to be faithful as a Christian at this time is to take a second look at my own sin and to be willing to forsake sin and turn to Jesus. That I might be a voice for truth in the community a consistent witness for Christ. Oh, it's hard because I have a lot of sin, you know. So I have to remember that the righteous standard that we call people to is not our own, but that of God's. And the way that we are calling people to is not our way, but that of Christ's. And the truth that we are espousing is not our truth, but the truth of God as explained in his word. And I'm not preaching myself. I am preaching Christ crucified and the glory and holiness of God. So I have to balance my own conviction in the sense that I need to grow in holiness and in righteousness to be a more faithful witness in my community and the truth that it's not me, but it is Christ to whom we're calling people. And it is his witness. And he, at the end of the day, the book of Revelation says, is the faithful and true witness. But I want to, I want to like, I want to like close the gap on the disparity between my witness and the witness of Christ. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? If the church could, with the help of the Holy Spirit, 
for the good of our community and for the glory of God, begin to close the gap on the disparity between our witness and the witness of Christ. So that we would, through repentance, by grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, according to the truth of the word of God, look a little more like Jesus and less just like the community around us. Help us, Lord, to do that. I want us to look now at Isaiah 58 and 59. I'm going to read it to us. We're going to read about 34 verses right now. Uh, We'll put it on the screen for you to follow along. I'm reading from the NLT. Let me just, yeah, a little NLT here. Let me just say this. Uh, I know today's a little heavy. I prayed hard not to be heavy. This passage is super heavy. Isaiah 58 and 59. Okay, so just fair warning. So as we read it, um, we've got to hear it two ways. We've got to hear it like on behalf of our community and what God might be saying to all people. We also have to hear what God might be saying to us as we want to confront our own sin to be more faithful witnesses of Jesus. And we have to remember the gospel. We've got to remember that we are no longer under the law, but we have been saved from the penalty of law through the cross of Jesus Christ. And though we are wicked and deserving wrath, we have forgiveness through Jesus. So we've got to remember the gospel because we'll be convicted as we read these passages. We've got to remember that the gospel does not only save us from sin, the gospel also delivers us from the power of sin and gives us the means through the power of the Holy Spirit to live more rightly before God in this world. So then we also have hope as we see the dissonance between our own lives in this passage. Pretty good disclaimer. Okay. Isaiah 58. Shout with a voice a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice. I'll tell you why, I respond, God speaking. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? The kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from your relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will be quickly healed. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. So remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you're dry and restoring your strength. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. 
Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests in that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. And speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day. Don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestors. Your ancestor Jacob, I, the Lord, have spoken. Chapter 59. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers, and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies, and your mouth spews corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. They hatch deadly snakes and weave spiders' webs. Whoever falls into their webs will die, and there's danger even in getting near them. Their webs can't be made into clothing, and nothing they do is productive. All their activity is filled with sin, and violence is their trademark. Their feet run to do evil, and they rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction will always then follow them. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and do good. They've mapped out crooked roads, and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. So there's no justice among us. And we know nothing about right living. We look for light, but only find darkness. We look for bright skies, but walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even at the brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. Among the living, we are like the dead. We growl like hungry bears. We moan like mournful doves. We look for justice, but it never comes. We look for rescue, but it's far away from us. For our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know what sinners we are. We know we've rebelled and have denied the Lord. We've turned our backs on our God. We know how unfair and oppressive we've been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. Our courts oppose the righteous. Justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. So the Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. Listen to verse 16. He was amazed to see that no one interceded to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained them. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. In the West, people will respect the name of the Lord. In the East, they will glorify him. For he will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, says the Lord. And this is my covenant. This is speaking of the new covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them, and neither will these words I have given you. They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I, the Lord, have spoken. The chapters start with God saying to his prophet, 
don't be afraid. Tell my people of their sins. He says to his mouthpiece, be willing to call it out. And then at the end, God himself calls down his saving mercy. At the end, he says, you know what? I'll do it. Like a frustrated parent, right? Give me that. I'll do it. (laughs) Right? You saw verse 16? He's like, I was astonished, verse 16. I was astonished that I didn't find anyone who was willing to intercede. Verse 16, Reynolds. I was astonished that no one was willing to intervene for the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with a strong arm and his justice sustained them. And then the rest of the passage talks about the first coming of Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. It alludes to his second coming to bring righteousness to earth. And there we have the terms of the new covenant. So I think to be faithful to who God is and what God has said, we as God's people, by grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, humbly in the light of suffering, need to be willing in the long term in our community to call it out, that's darkness, and to call it down. Jesus is the light and the life and the way and the truth. May your eyes be open to his love for you that you'd repent of your sins and be forgiven. Now, don't misunderstand me. Last week when we addressed these three questions, where is God when these things happen? Why does God allow these things to happen? And are these things a judgment of God upon our community? We made a strong biblical case that we do not see these things as God's judgment upon our community. These things happen in a chaotic, fallen world. But I am saying that according to what I know from Scripture, God would certainly be willing to use such a thing to bring people to himself that they might receive the forgiveness of sins through Christ and escape the ultimate judgment that is coming one day. So here's my, that's my encouragement. Aren't you encouraged? Here's my discouragement. So I, I think that these things begin at least with intercession. We've got to be willing to work on behalf of others. There'll be ways that we could work with our hands, but we've got to be willing to do the hard work in prayer. You know what I mean? So like last week, right after the floods, we called Tuesday night prayer meeting. Hey, wow, our community is facing something unprecedented. It's never happened before. Let's come together as God's people and pray for healing and restoration and renewal and mercy for our community. And out of the hundreds that heard that message, there weren't even 40 people that were willing to come and pray. So I don't say this to condemn you, like, I don't want to really, I, I honestly, I don't really want to give up my Tuesday night and pray either. Like, I got TV shows I want to watch. I got stuff I want to do. Like, I got projects in my garage. I don't really want to go either. But I'm saying that maybe we, we ought to be willing to do some faithful hard work and prayer for the glory of God and for the good of our community. And so my discouragement is when I look at um, that response, we're thankful for every single person that came to pray, but that doesn't look like the seeds of spiritual awakening in our community to me. If I know anything from the books that I've read on revival, there's always a prayer movement that births that in the sovereignty of God. And I just want to ask, like, I just want... I just want to ask if I had such authority to speak to the whole church from Ventura to Galita, all of us who've been affected by this, like would, could we as a church begin to pray for God's mercy on our community? 
begin to pray for spiritual awakening in our community. Because we know we're a church that doesn't pray. I don't just mean reality, I mean all the churches. So what if, through this opportunity, God birthed in the church a willingness to intercede and to be a people of prayer? And what if God did what he's done historically in scripture and in history since and responded to our prayers with spiritual awakening in our community? And what if kids that we know got saved? What if coworkers that we have got saved? What if whole families got saved? What if there were whole movements and neighborhoods of people getting saved? What if the word of God was free to go forth on our campuses? What if it went forth at Canalino School? I don't know all the schools. What if God's word was welcomed into our campuses and kids begin to get saved in our community? What if we started to repent of our selfishness and our sin and so our marriages were healed and we were more faithful moms and more faithful dads? What if we stopped carrying the bitterness and grudges that we had and we forgave each other because we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we have been forgiven sin? What if we weren't so afraid to be politically correct and we just called out sin and evil and darkness in our community and we called down God's blessing on people and we're willing to show them and to tell them the glorious gospel of Jesus because God loves them and every single person is worth it. Like what if God did that? It would be worth the hard work of intercession. Calling it out and calling it down. So I have in my old age, 45, become a realist. What I would like to say is, you know, we had a prayer meeting last Tuesday. Uh, Very few people responded to the call and I know you have life and kids and all that stuff. And going forward, we'll try to have child care. Um, I'd like to say, we're going to have another Tuesday night prayer meeting. Everyone's going to be there, but I'm a realist. So instead of asking you to come to a prayer meeting, I'm going to ask you to pray now. You know, just like take a minute to call it out and call it down in prayer. If you're uncomfortable praying with other people, I totally understand that. You can pray by yourself. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to become a Christian by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus and being born again and knowing abundant life and eternal life. If you don't want to do that, you're welcome to sit here and trip out. (laughs) If you're a Christian, I'm just asking you then as a Christian, don't stir too much because I lose you then. I'm just asking you if you're a Christian to be willing to just say a few prayers call it out and call it down. So let's call out just a couple of things in prayer. Pray how you want, but let's call out. Just put it all up, Rennie. Let's identify and repent of our own sins. Let's identify and repent of some of the sins of our community. And let's call it down. Put it all up, Rennie. Ask God for mercy and spiritual awakening and renewal and ask God to make clear our calling as a church at this moment in history. I'm sure you have better ways to pray, but I just want to like get us started. So we'll just take a few minutes. If you're willing to like pray with someone next to you or get in a small group and let that be your guide, let's just take like a few minutes and intercede for our community. Maybe God would birth something for the glory of Christ and the well-being of people. Cool? Sorry. Pray. Pray. Pray.